0: Driving through one of the largest cities in Texas, the world-renowned Dallas. You might expect to see some stereotypical Texan things such as horses, people with cowboy hats and belts, buckies, barbecue joints, or some Dallas Cowboys merchandise. But something you probably won't be expecting to see are rainbow crosswalks, queer-themed businesses such as out-of-the-closet thrift store, or a diverse array of people walking around being able to celebrate who they are as a person. But that is what makes the neighborhood of Oakland and Dallas so special. This neighborhood is a safe haven for LGBTQ individuals in the Metroplex. It is a place for all identities of the queer community, with many queer businesses such as multiple gay bars, a lesbian bar, queer thrift stores, churches, bookstores, and restaurants along with many other things. This neighborhood has the largest gay church in the United States, the Cathedral of Hope, the most rainbow crosswalks in the United States, the Rose Room which is the largest drag showroom in the state of Texas located in the club Station 4, as well as the biggest lesbian bar in Texas, Sue Ellen's, which we will focus on in episode 4. Throughout this podcast series, we will discuss the businesses, activism, nightlife, and how Texas impacts the neighborhood with episodes regarding each topic. We will also discuss the past history of Oaklawn in comparison to Oaklawn today. However, as we are recording this in 2023, I want you to get a feel of what Oaklawn is like. We spoke to some people who visit the area often. This is what they had to say about the impact Oaklawn has had on the individual lives of queer people. We first met with Quincy Good, a student at UNT, and we asked him how he found out about Oakland.
1: So I found out about it when I came to Dallas for my 18th birthday to celebrate with my cousin. And he was like, oh my God, you have to go to Oakland! like you've never been there? And I was like, no. And so he brought me out there and I went there for my first time and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was something that was definitely like a lot different than what I've ever seen before because I grew up in a very, very small conservative town. Mm-hmm. that was like two, three thousand people.
0: We then asked Quincy why Oak Lawn was so significant, not only to him as a queer person, but also to the state of Texas and the southern United States as a whole.
1: Obviously, you know, it's one of the first times I was able to like, go somewhere and, like, you know, actually be like who I was and like unapologetically who I was. So it was really nice to kind of like have the opportunity um, to, you know, being someone that you know where where's makeup not on the daily but like where's makeup from time to time like you know once again i'm not going to express that part of them mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to be like let that layer like out there and like let other people see like hey this is me this is what i like to do and it's like you just feel like a sense of like overwhelming like welcoming at first once you're there your first time um and now like it just kind of feels like oh i'm like just going back to like you know an, uh like an old home that i was a part of you know what i mean
0: we then met with Samuel Aparicio, another student at UNC who frequents Oakland. And this is what he had to say about the atmosphere in Oakland.
2: I would say the atmosphere in Oakland is very, it's very exciting. There's always something going on. It feels like everyone just goes there to let loose and have a good time. It's kind of like the end of week party place, if that makes sense.
0: And when we were all done speaking to Samuel, he left us with this beautiful parting message.
2: I would say everybody should go to Oakland at least once and just check it out. Um, It's not just like a club and bar scene. They also have really nice food. There's a lot of shops also. So I feel like it's just a place that a lot of people should go and check out.
0: Hearing first person what Oakland means to queer people from different areas across Texas shows what a light this community is while being in a state that makes it difficult to be able to express yourself as an individual. It is a special community, a bubble of sorts where it is okay to be as openly queer and proud as you like, without fear of retaliation. It is a place where gay men, lesbians, transgender, and other subsets of the rainbow community have come together, more so than other neighborhoods around the country. This fabulous and diverse area was not always so lit up with proud openly queer people. In the 1960s and 70s, this neighborhood was prone to police violence, sexism, and hate crimes targeted against the people who live there. We are setting the timeline of this episode from 1960 which was the decade where queer activism began in Oak to the period before the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, which we will cover in depth at a later episode in the podcast series.
3: From the University of North Texas in Denton.
0: I'm Jacqueline Martinez.
3: I'm Brent Barden. And I'm Noah Kahn. And this is Out in Oak Lawn, A Queer History of Dallas, a podcast about one of the largest neighborhoods in Texas. In this episode, we will explore the early history of Oaklawn, pinpointing how the area went from a place where individuals with similar interests came together to drink and dance to a community who fought against oppression and for equality. This made not only the community, but the neighborhood, the diverse and welcoming area that it is today.
4: What is community? It's a word that is so commonly used in the 21st century that sometimes the definition gets clouded. There are two definitions of the word. The first definition defines community as a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. But in our episode, the community was Oaklawn before the 1980s. The majority of people in Oakland were all a part of the LGBTQ community. These individuals came to the neighborhood to be around people who had the same romantic and sexual interests as them, to go to bars and not worry about heterosexual judgment. However, during this period, the people of Oak Lawn did not feel a sense of definition two of community, which is defined as a feeling of fellowship with others. This could be an isolating feeling, as most of the world did not accept queerness as an acceptable identity. Far from the days of the romantic friendship of the 19th century and the pansy craze of the 1920s, where same-sex love and cross-dressing, or drag as it's commonly known today, were more socially accepted. The acceptance of these lifestyles quickly went away, when terms such as heterosexual, homosexual, and transsexual were defined by scientists in the early 20th century. Defining these terms also solidified that opposite-sex attraction and the adherence to social norms of your gender assigned at birth is the status quo. This led individuals to feel that they did not fit in with society. Anti-gay laws such as the Texas Homosexual Sodomy Law, which was instated in 1973, criminalized queer sexual activity and made these people feel out of place. Ray Hill, who was a gay activist from Houston, wrote to the Texas Queer Journal This Week in Texas, which began publication in the 1970s. I dropped by to talk to the queer historian Dr. Wesley Phelps to discuss the impact that this lack of community had on Hill and others during this time.
5: So, Ray Hill was a queer activist in Houston before there were any real queer activists anywhere in Texas, and he was talking about the rights of gays and lesbians in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, So he's really a pioneer when we think about the movement for queer equality in Texas. And one of the things he was really focused on, one of the things that he thought was really important was building community. And there's actually a couple of great quotes from him in an issue of This Week in Texas from 1976 Uh, where he writes about community. I'll share some of that with you here. He wrote, The gay community is supposed to be like any other community, a collection of individuals with common interests served by the institutions they share. If people congregate into communities through common interests, then those communities dissolve when the individual's differences are given greater importance than their similarities. So while you hear a lot about the gay community, we've never really developed into a community. We've made a beginning, but it includes less than 5% of all gay people, and a few non-gay people, who share a sense of belonging with one another.
4: This statement is very telling of the time, and Hill goes on to explain the importance of coming together as a community rather than falling victim to oppression.
5: We, as gays, should strive to join the mainstream society, not separate from it. We want to have the same rights and opportunities that everyone else enjoys. The gay person who must live in fear of discovery to have rights does not really want them at all. The enormous amount of rhetoric I have listened to that justifies closet freedom is merely an excuse for more oppression. Hill then issues a call to action,
4: begging gay people at the time to get involved and form a community for the protection of their
5: rights. You can wait until all the other activists win your freedom. And while you wait, you can get arrested in a general harassment raid, get picked up off the streets, get attacked by some homophobe outside your favorite bar, lose your job because you're gay, or lose your self-respect in society, or you can get involved and help better yourself and the entire gay community. This
4: quote spoke to me and my colleagues, and it is one of the many in our college campus's library special collection archives which houses the largest collection of LGBTQ plus memorabilia in the state of Texas. Go Mean Green! We have all come into our queer identities after gay marriage had been legalized and the homosexual conduct law has been eradicated. Gen Z has the privilege of growing up in a time where being queer was not as stigmatized. However, these dangers were very prevalent in the lives of gay Texans pre-1979, when getting arrested was public record. And with laws such as 21.06, the Texas sodomy law, being active, police felt justified targeting queer patrons. Here is Don Baker, a gay rights activist who would go on to challenge and even temporarily abolish the Texas sodomy law in the landmark case Baker v. Wade. He was discussing the detrimental influence this sodomy law had on the lives of queer men and women in Texas for years in an interview with the Ed Bush talk show in 1986.
2: Prior to 1973, uh, it was against the law for uh, people to engage in certain types of sexual activity. However, in 1973, the Texas legislature reinvented a law or invented a law called Mm 21.06 of the Texas Penal Code. And that law made it uh, a crime for persons of the same gender to be involved in intimate sexual relationships in the privacy of their home.
4: Baker was then asked about the amount of gay people that actually went to jail when this law was imposed.
2: Uh, The law has not been enforced that frequently. Mm -hmm. Uh, The issue here is therefore why is the law there? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's our opinion that the law is there because it is a way that society wants to, or feels that they need to single out one segment of the community they do not know and do not understand. Because that law existed, it was okay for people to deny gay people Uh, employment, housing, because we then were perceived as people habitually involved in criminal activity, that it was okay that we Ah. should be denied those very basic uh, American civil rights.
4: Don Baker sadly passed away from a long seven-year battle with cancer in 2004. However, his bravery in defending himself and the whole queer community helped leave a legacy of honor that will live on in the lives of gay educators for decades to come. Robert Emery is a gay trailblazer in the Oak Lawn scene and the founder of the Dallas Way, which is an organization whose mission is to gather, organize, store, and present the complete LGBTQ history of Dallas. Robert sat down with my colleagues and I to discuss some of the constant fears that this looming police presence caused in the everyday lives
6: of the Oak Lawn patrons. It was terrible, hateful, mean, wicked, oppressive. Um. Let's take the example of the Villa Fontana on Exall Park. It was a freestanding public gay bar. When I say public, I mean, it wasn't a private house. It was, but I mean, it was very unspoken. You know, there's, there was never a name on the door. It was just a door. Um, but the police would do all kinds of hateful, wicked things. One thing they would do is they would cruise around the bar and take down the license plate numbers of every car that was parked anywhere near.
4: There was a hospital located near XL Park, which could provide queer people with an alibi rather than admitting to going to a queer meeting space. However, police still targeted individuals that were parked at the hospital,
6: hunting for queer people to punish. And then they would publish those people's names in the newspaper. Now, maybe you parked there and you really were going to the hospital. But 90% of the time, those people, again, Lost their families, lost their jobs, took their lives. Sadly,
4: this was a very common issue for queer people at the time. Even presently in 2023, the Trevor Project documented that 43% of LGBTQ individuals contemplated suicide in the last year. Without communities to discuss these issues with, queer people often feel alone turning to sex, drugs, and other forms of coping to deal with the loneliness of being queer in the mid-20th century.
6: Also, house parties were an equally popular thing. Uh, People would have dinner parties uh, with groups of 10 and 20 in houses. But both private house parties and public gay bars were raided frequently. You were not safe in your own home. They would come in to your own home and say that something bad was going on. You were dragged downtown and people were arrested all the time. And again, same thing, when you're arrested, your name is going to appear in the paper.
4: This public outing of sexuality devastated some individuals, resulting in people being terminated from their jobs, ostracized from their families, and even taking their own lives. Queer people were not even safe being themselves in their own homes, or establishments that cater to the LGBTQ plus community. We asked Robert about what an actual first person raid of a gay bar club at Oakland was like during the period before the AIDS epidemic.
6: We have to take ourselves to their mindset of the 60s and 70s. Two men dancing, the, the image of that was so offensive to them that it was easy for general public to accept that as public lewdness. And you know that there were always uh, always a doorman and there were lights that would come on. So when the red lights came on, everyone separated. When they knew somebody was coming in, that was police, because sometimes they identified themselves. Or when they pulled up in a police car, red lights came on and everyone separated. Just scatter and stand still. You're not dancing because if you're dancing and you're facing anyone, that could be you could be paired with someone, right? So you just stood still. They walked in and everyone stood still. I have memories of policemen walking past me. You just stand there and try not to do anything that would catch their eye.
4: When asking Robert Emery about what the experience of queer people was like after the raid, if someone or multiple people
6: were arrested, this was his response. In in 1979, the village station was raided, as it was raided often. And everyone was taken downtown and everyone was put in front of a judge. And like they'd been doing for decades, they appeared in front of a judge, downcast eyes, soft-spoken. They answered the one question, how do you plead? Guilty.
4: This was sadly the experience of many queer Texans during the 1960s and 1970s. That is until one night at the Village Station Club, which is now known as Station 4, in 1979, when one man altered the trajectory of queer Texas history.
6: But on one particular night in the late 70s, a lawyer named Don Mason went downtown and told those 30 men, none of you are gonna say guilty. For once in our lives, we're gonna stand up. Here is the lawyer Don Mason in
4: 2010, talking about the now infamous Village Station raid.
7: Homophobia among the Dallas Police Department was common and the raid at the old village station on Cedar Springs Road was one of the many raids along the street during the 1970s. But it stood out in a number of arrests, in the number of arrests that were made and the number of vice squad officers present. I think the entire vice squad was involved. They arrested 12 people who were doing a bunny hop on the dance floor and charged them with public lewdness. The village station raid became a turning point not just for the Cedar Springs area, but for the whole gay community. Because four of the 12 men arrested decided to fight the charges. That was unique. That was the first time. No one had ever stood up to the police before. In the past, gays were fearful that any publicity surrounding an arrest for public lewdness could cause them to lose their jobs. They usually pleaded guilty to avoid publicity. No mainstream media reported the village station raid as such raids were commonplace.
4: After the raid, Don got many queer lawyers to represent these gay men that were arrested for public lewdness. After a while, he was able to expunge this charge from the four men who pled guilty's record.
7: After the raid, we started publishing the names of officers who were arresting gays, and the police were very uncomfortable with that publicity. We we had to be secretive. (laughs) and how we got the names at that time the police department released only the names of the arresting officers to attorneys so attorney don mason who is now president and ceo of aid services dallas did it on the slide for us (laughs) as far as i know the police department never figured out how we were getting the names we put them in the gay alliance newsletter the dialogue and also in a statewide publication called this week in texas by 1980 We had a file of about 60 complaints against police officers from people who said they had done nothing related to public lewdness and yet had been arrested. Around this time, we also started appearing at the Dallas City Council meetings. I went to the Dallas City Council and said it was time for the harassment to stop. We thought police officers were being overzealous in arresting gay clientele in the bars. The notion of gay pride began to emerge. The raid and its aftermath sparked a dialogue between the police department and the gay community that hadn't existed before.
4: The bravery from Mason and the defendants standing up for the unfair treatment of homosexuals was monumental at the time. This event was shortly coined Dallas's Stonewall in reference to the famous retaliation from LGBTQ people after a routine bar raid at the Stonewall Inn bar in New York City. That night, 13 people were arrested. This riot led to police barricading themselves inside the Stonewall Inn Bar. It was ironic that the police were trapped inside the gay bar that the institutes had pushed queer people into for decades. This event marked a significant shift in the Oakland community and was a time where queer people looked at the treatment of their community and realized enough was enough and that there needed to be a radical change. Don Mason sadly passed away from cancer in 2022 but his legacy lives on in every LGBTQ plus person that walks the streets of Oakland, able to fully and authentically be themselves. Without trailblazers such as he, we would not have the same freedoms we are afforded presently in 2023.
3: Despite this shift in the late 1970s, which signaled a common community fighting for the rights of their rainbow counterparts, other activist groups in the late 1960s were attempting to create a safe space to talk about queer issues outside of house parties, gay bars, and clubs. This led to the creation of the Circle of Friends, which is the first gay social club organization in Dallas that discussed issues that were specific to the queer population. Established in 1965 by Dallas native Phil Johnson, The circle, as it was commonly known, had a single mission, according to Johnson, to create a place for gay people to meet other gay people that's not just a gay bar. It began with only five members, as well as several non-gay local ministers, who were allies that could help protect the circle from harassment. Unfortunately, though they did have strong allies, they were still risking everything for this cause. Though they were not doing anything illegal, the thought of a group of gay men organizing for political reasons or otherwise, would ring all sorts of alarm bells with the police. But they knew that the rewards far outweighed the risks, as the queer population in the Dallas area desperately needed a safe way to organize and fight for equality. This helped Oklahoma's queer community to ascribe to the second definition of community, which describes it as the feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. We met Mr. Emery at Oak Lawn, where he, Along with bar manager and fellow Oakland legend Kathy Jack, gave us a tour of all the bars and restaurants around the area. We even got to experience what nightlife and businesses in Oakland were like in the daytime, but we will focus on that in another episode. Here is what Mister Emery had to say about the circle of friends, and the influence it had on a city that was far from ready to accept queer individuals. It was Phil Johnson, and his friends, and there were only about six of them at the beginning,
6: and they met in a home uh, just a block off of the crossroads. But Circle of Friends was a way of course of socializing because house parties and bars were raided frequently. But Circle of Friends had an interesting component of ministers, uh, non-gay ministers, from churches who would come to the circle of friends and do a, if not a worship service, certainly a community moment they would create, but they invited different ministers. And this was brilliant and strategic and accidental. And it just happened that their relationship with these open-minded, open-hearted non-gay ministers was a was a, uh, a shield, a protective shield for them from being raided because it was a spiritual gathering. They were not hiding behind that. That was actually what was happening. But the fact that it was a non-gay minister meant to the police something along the lines of it was more acceptable.
3: This organization helped transform Oaklawn from an area where people came mainly for the party and club scene into a place of activism, where queer people fought for their rights and discussed queer issues. Here's Phil Johnson, who unfortunately passed away in 2019 at the age of 94, describing firsthand what those meetings were like.
1: I had invited four friends over for a New Year's Eve celebration, and at midnight on January the 1st, 1965, we decided we'd form the first gay organization in Texas, and we called it the Circle of Friends. It was to be a social organization, um, a place other than a gay bar for gay people to meet other gay people.
3: These meetings were very important at the time. Phil Johnson explained that straight individuals had a negative view on homosexuals, thinking that they were just sexual perverts with drug and alcohol problems. However, this was stigmatized because queer people were forced into limited places such as gay clubs and bars by an oppressive government, citizens, and lawmakers that prioritize the majority over minorities. This is why it was important to show that all people in the Dallas community are not always engaging in the party scene and that some are even practicing or associated with practicing religious figures. This shows those in the community that there are alternate ways to meet and to partake in community activities.
0: The Circle of Friends always involved Christian ministers and reverends to help legitimize and protect the meetings of queer people in the eyes of law enforcement and straight people. Phil Johnson did not settle for these small meetings either. He had goals of expanding his organization across the neighborhood, city and beyond. He was a part of organizing Dallas's first gay pride parade and on June 24, 1972, he accomplished that goal. This was a huge deal for a red state of Texas and impacted the lives of countless queer people. With an ambitious vision, the Circle of Friends then created the Metropolitan Community Church of Dallas in the 1970s and had about 300 members. But in the beginning, it wasn't always a thriving place of religious freedom. Phil Johnson, creator of the Circle of Friends and 12 other people, were given the opportunity by Reverend Ed Corson to create a church space in the coffee house called the Attic Window. Unfortunately, near the Attic Window was a non-gay business that said they don't want a queer church in their neighborhood. So they decided to meet at a gay bar named the Bonsoir instead. The MCC was still searching for a place to call home and weren't really held by the queer community. Mr. Johnson says the gays and lesbians would call them queens trying to play church, but that didn't stop them from getting what they wanted. Eventually, they were given a Sunday school classroom named the Porch Sanctuary by the directors of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas. Fortunately, this small group of 12 eventually grew into a much larger group. With this increased membership, they needed a new home to house all of their new members. They were given the opportunity to use the Normandy Chapel for $25 a service but with their budget, they couldn't afford to pay $25 every time. Richard Vincent, who was a friend of Phil Johnson's, had some money up his sleeve and kindly funded the way for the MCC and many more new members to call the Normandy Chapel their new home. Reverend Richard Vincent was elected pastor of the Normandy Chapel, but the Normandy Chapel was so small that no matter how hard they tried, they had trouble gaining any traction and continued to struggle finding a permanent home. In 1972, the Metropolitan Community Church of Dallas founded a hospital that would become their home. They specifically said it was serene and unbound, despite years of vandalism and neglect, and nicknamed this building the Castle. The Castle was originally built in the 1920s as a hospital, and then used again as a Mexican curio shop. And when the Circle of Friends found it, the homeless were using it as a shelter. It was vacant, but it had beautiful and powerful potential to be a home. So they began working and making petitions for one side to be a church sanctuary and the other side to be the meeting hall. They worked and worked and by Thanksgiving Day, it still wasn't ready. But however, they made it work. On July 20th, 1990, the Cathedral of Hope was born and became the home to many. After all the hard work and uncertainty, Phil Johnson, when asked about the new location, stated somehow the small community didn't feel so cold or impoverished. With all that family-like sharing amid humble beginnings, after all, we were at last home. This church influenced the ways that queer people could meet outside of nightlife. Here's Daniel Murray, a member of the organization talking about the Cathedral of Hope's impact.
2: We all had hope and I think the name of our church now Cathedral of Hope is of course perfectly appropriate because uh, from the very beginning, we all had great aspirations and we all had hope that someday, that we would find a place in society, we would find a place uh, in our community where we could serve, we could be recognized, we could be accepted, we'd be given opportunities to serve.
0: None of the freedoms that we experienced would be possible without Phil Johnson's leadership. He was a man of his word and what he wanted, he got. Phil Johnson was a trailblazer and true icon in the LGBTQ community. His legacy is still felt throughout Oakland even after his passing, and his memory lives on through the improved lives of queer people in 2023 and going forward. I would like to end this episode with a quote from Reverend C. Sean Farrell, discussing the importance of the history of the church.
2: A lot of saints came before you, and they built this place. Uh, You may have sold bonds, and some builder may have come in and put the bricks up, but those saints built this place you got a couple of their names on the walls out there. Uh, Jim's dead. Uh, A lot of them aren't here anymore. But uh, if you listen real careful sometimes in that sanctuary, you're probably going to hear them. And now those of you that are here, well, you're the saints who who paved the way for the ones that come after you.
3: Coming up on Out in Oak Lawn, we will cover the past and present queer experiences of the Oak Lawn community in Dallas. Join us in the following episodes as we explore queer cowboy culture, businesses, nightlife, the lesbian experience, political activism, and what the neighborhood is like today. Out in Oak Lawn is an undergraduate student-led project funded by the Department of History at the University of North Texas. This episode was researched and produced by Brent Barden, Noah Kahn, and Jacqueline Martinez. Special thanks to our professor, Dr. Wesley Phelps, the UNT Library's Special Collections Department, the Dallas Way, the Portal to Texas History, and the community members of Oak Lawn. Thanks also to Quincy Good, Samuel Aparicio, Robert Emery, Don Baker, Don Mason, Daniel Murray, Reverend C. Sean Farrell, and Phil Johnson for their insights into the early history of Oak Lawn. Our theme music was composed by Alexi Action. Additional music in this episode was composed by the Caffeine Creek Band and Daddy S Music. You can find more episodes and research notes at our website, outinoaklawn.podbean.com.